0: Over the last few weeks, we've talked a little bit at times about the fact that we sing these lofty and big ideas and then sometimes don't see them played out in our lives. And um, I was just thinking about, as we were singing that song and that refrain, there is no God like our God. There's no one like Him. And the idea is, in that song and understanding and what we've sung other times is, We have a God that is unlike anything else in the universe. We have a God that that cares deeply for us, but is all-powerful, that has died for us, has brought us salvation. We have a God that is able to do whatever He would like to do. We have a God who is morally pure and acceptable, that is perfect in every way, that is able to take away any circumstance or situation in our life, that is able to use us to do absolutely anything that we can imagine. Now, we often live as if we have a God that can do some stuff, can do a few things. Our lives sometimes betray that we may not believe in our hearts how great this God is that we serve. One of the ways that we do that in our culture is that we look for a reason behind everything. We look for an explanation for everything. We look to, to have a, a rhyme or reason why circumstances are in our lives. We want things explained completely. We, we want things to have a, a neat and tidy package that allows us to understand them, to get our arms around them. If we don't know what something is, we, we Google it. We search for it. We find it. We get the answers we need. But the truth is there are parts of life that aren't that neat and tidy and sometimes the greatest part of our lives are those times when we kind of step out into the mystery of the unknown and allow God to work in a way that is mighty and amazing and more than we would have ever dreamed possible. This morning, we're going to talk about one of those moments in Scripture, one of my favorite moments in Scripture. But I want to I want to start with a quote today or a main idea today. And let me just say, if you're... Um, We're going to get our Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. You can follow along on the YouVersion Live. Some of you have mentioned that you haven't been able to find it. You may have to search instead of our zip code, just Goodlettsville. For some reason, it's not showing up on the zip code or the location finder. But just search Goodlettsville, and it's there. It's called Cage of Assumptions. But we're going to talk today about this main idea. That a faith devoid of wonder is no faith at all. A faith devoid of wonder is no faith at all. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, if you can explain everything that's happening in your life by natural reasons, then you haven't been following the supernatural almighty God and what He intends for you. I was thinking about our need for um, an explanation to all things the other day when I was watching um, a cartoon with the boys. Now, Those of you that have been around a little bit understand that I sometimes find theological truths in strange places. Um, I was watching a cartoon with our boys that I actually watched growing up. And that was around before I grew up. And so it's one that's been around for a long time. And it's a mystery cartoon where some teenagers, with the help of their talking dog, solve mysteries, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Scooby-Doo, right? So I was watching Scooby-Doo with the boys the other day, and, you know, they've got Scooby-Doo from back before I was born where they meet the, uh, um, you know, the Batman and Robin. You you remember that? Some of you old school get people, you remember that? Batman and Robin or the Harlem Globetrotters. or uh, There was one the other day that had Phyllis Diller in it. Anybody remember Phyllis Diller? All right, you remember her? All right, some of you young people won't remember Phyllis. but, But they brought it all the way up to the day, and they're like, you know, doing Scooby Doo movies all the time. In fact over the holidays we were at my uh father in law's house and uh we you know, at my father in law's house we have the triplets that are a few months older than Luke and you have Eli and so about day two and a half everybody's ready for something to settle down. All right. And so we found on somehow he had been uh signed into our nephew's Netflix account. And so we started watching Scooby Doos and we watched about ten Scooby Doos and so my nephew who's now in his early 20s has Scooby-Doo recommendations from Netflix all the time but so we're watching it the other day and you know the basic premise of every Scooby-Doo movie you've ever seen right it begins with some goblin or alien or ghost or uh, swamp monster or something right and they are all scared of it and Scooby and Shaggy apparently are very scared of it and Everything goes through. And by the end of the episode, what do you learn, though? Somebody in a costume. Or it's levers. Or it's some robotic, you know, the new ones, that's robotic stuff, right? So it's not real. And so the point of the whole Scooby-Doo is that what seems to be supernatural or crazy can easily be explained. I was thinking about even in our spiritual lives. How we so much want lives that can be explained. And that we have lost a sense of wonder. We've lost that sense. Um, I mentioned a few months ago that we took the boys to the Space and Science Rocket Center. And when I went into that hall where they've got that rocket, it was like I was a 10-year-old boy again. I wanted to see the rocket and read everything about it. And they had those little things where you push a button and it makes a rocket sound. And I wanted to do all that. And I thought, as I stood there in that hall and just in awe and wonder thought about that, I thought, and I miss these moments in our lives. I mean, do you remember being a kid and how things could just make you in awe and wonder about what was happening? As we grow up, we think it's more mature to explain things. When the truth is, we serve a God that sometimes does the unexplainable. Look at chapter 14 of Matthew, starting in verse two, 22. Chapter 14, starting in verse 22. It says, immediately. Now, what happened before the immediately? You can look back in your Bibles. Tell me, what happened before immediately? He fed the 5,000, right? It's kind of a big deal. He uh, gets everybody there. They don't have any food to eat. He's got a few fish. He's got a couple of pieces of bread. And he prays over it. And suddenly 5,000 men plus women and children are fed. Anybody remember in other Gospels what the people wanted to do for Jesus right then. They wanted to make him king. Jesus is king. Now, here's the interesting thing. He had healed people. He had done miraculous signs. But they really liked him when they fed him. When they got fed by him, right? Like... Now we like him. That is the guy we need in office. He can make food whenever we need it. And so they want to make him king, and Jesus realizes that the crowd's getting a little bit, and and he tells his disciples, he says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. I like the use of the term made, like they didn't want to go. But Jesus, we're not going to leave you here with all these people. And he says, no, get in the boat. Get going. You've got to get ahead. You've got to get to the other side. You've got to get going. And so he puts them in the boat. He sends them away. And I love this. He says, well, he dismissed the crowd. Now, I am... In currently in process of getting a PhD in church growth. Jesus was terrible at church growth principles because he would get a big crowd and then he'd tell half of them to leave. I mean, he'd say, "Wait, I got too many people here. Leave." In fact, he didn't do it that way, but he would often do things like, not long after this, in the Book of John, it tells us that he starts to tell people, "Listen, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to eat my my flesh." And they're like. We all think, oh, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. That's so sweet. That's nice. That's not what they thought. They thought, what? You got to drink my blood. And it says, many of them turned away that day. He would get a crowd, start to build it, and he would start to teach things that would make them run away. So he gets this crowd, and he says, listen, we, you got to leave. I'm not going to be your king. You have got to leave. You got to get out of here. He goes up on the mountaintop. He prays by himself. And then it says, after he did this mess, he went up on the mount side by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. The book of Mark says he was standing on the shore alone while the disciples were struggling against the wind out in the boat. It tells us here in verse 24, that the boat was already a considerable distance away. It was was out there. And it was being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, most of us have read this from when we were a child. We've heard this story. Even if we hadn't been in church or Sunday school, we know Jesus walked on the water. And so we fully expect, oh, of course, Jesus is going to walk on the water. But there is an assumption in life that people don't walk on water. Right? What happens when you jump on top of water? You sink. Right? You don't walk on top of the water it doesn't happen we've read this so many times we just think well of course Jesus is going to walk on the water but the assumption is people don't walk on water now you may know this you probably know this there are lots of people out there that would like to find natural explanations for everything mark batterson the book we talked about Wild goose chase tells about a paper he came across called is there a paleo-limnological explanation for walking on water in the Sea of Galilee? Anybody know what paleolimnological means? A couple of you, all right. One of them was in the first service, right? Okay, I looked it up. I Googled it because I have to have an explanation for everything, right? It is people who study ancient lakes. People who study ancient lakes. How many of you, that sounds like the most exciting career path you could ever imagine? All right. That's all you do all day is study ancient lakes, not current lakes. You're not out on a boat in a current lake. You're thinking about ancient lakes. Well, he came up with a study. It was a guy named Doran Knoth. And he says that every few thousand years, that the atmospheric conditions are just right, and it will form blocks of ice in the Sea of Galilee, Sturdy enough for a man to walk on. And that might explain how Jesus walked on the water. You see, there are people that are trying to figure out natural causes for everything. But we read in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus, there's no ice in there, let me just tell you. That's not what the Bible says. He went out to them walking on the lake now let that soak in for just a moment uh, imagine if you will that you're out on old hickory lake and you're fishing and you're having a good time and suddenly you look up and someone not skiing just walking out calling out your name seeing if you've got anything for them to eat in your boat all right what would your reaction be i'll oh, be called absolutely come on in you know, There's no problem at all. That's not what you're going to do, is it? You're going to do the same thing they did. Now, imagine, if you will, if there's a storm going on and the waves are coming in the boat and you can't even row because the wind is so strong and you look out and there's somebody at night walking on the lake. We don't want to describe what some of your reactions would be because we're in church, right? Some of you get scared. Some of you might jump overboard. Some of you might yell things. Take a picture of it. Yeah, you're going to have the wits about you to take a picture, Clay. Yeah, drop your phone in the lake. <laughs> All right. And so he's coming, and it almost sounds—I mentioned Scooby-Doo kind of being funny, but it almost sounds like a Scooby-Doo episode here. Jesus is walking on the water, and what do they yell? Oh, it's Jesus! Come on in the boat, Jesus. Good to see you. Glad you could join. Us. Is that what they say? It's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's not. Calm down. It's just me. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Let me tell you three things that we miss if we let assumptions get in our way of following God. Now, let me just say from the beginning, this is a pretty big assumption that had to be wiped away, that men walk on water, right? And so sometimes we allow things to get in the way of following what God intends. Here's the first thing. Assumptions can prevent us from recognizing God's presence. I believe that part of what Jesus' ministry was all about, specifically to the disciples, was to convince them of the fact that he could do anything he wanted. That he was powerful enough to do amazing things so that on the other side of the resurrection, when Jesus has gone back to the Father, and they needed strength to do whatever needed to be done, they had complete confidence in Him. I mean, think about this just few few things here. He feeds 5,000 people. 5,000. With nothing. I mean, can you imagine if the caterers showed up or the food service workers showed up today at the Super Bowl? in the stadium, in Texas Stadium, and they found out that the food shipments could not get there because of the ice and the snow. And they had thousands of people hungry and waiting. They had no way to feed them. That's where these guys were. I mean, Jesus was at that moment. I mean, you think about the crowds. We think of big crowds. We're talking 5,000 people plus women and children. He was a major event. And they get to the major event. He's been teaching all day. They've been hanging on every word. He's been teaching them difficult things. And all of a sudden, somebody goes, man, it is supper time. What are we going to do? And so he blows away the assumption that somehow a few fish and some bread can feed 5,000 people. Not a bad assumption. Youth are having a Super Bowl party tonight, right? Where are you all going? You're going to Rutgers' house, right, Diane? Diane. And all you've got is a couple of pieces of fish and some bread for everybody tonight, right? No. She's been planning, right, for a while. Because they're going to have hungry teenagers at their house. And so, the question that he was saying is, am I greater than this circumstance? So they get in the boat and they they can't even row. The wind is so strong they can't even row. And it says, Jesus is starts walking out to them. And here's an interesting thing in the book of Mark when he tells the story. He says, Jesus intended to pass them by. Now think about how crazy that would have been. If they're sitting there with oars rowing as hard as they can and Jesus just walks past and goes, hey guys, what's going on? And just keeps on going. Now, there's theological language in there because when he says they intended to pass them by, it is the same word that they used to translate the Old Testament where God said... To Moses, go hide yourself in the cleft of the rock because I am about to pass you by. When he says to Elijah, get on that mountain and get prepared because I, God, am about to pass you by. It's the same thing. And so in the Bible, when it uses that phrase, what it means is God is intending to come by you to show you something about who he is. And if you're not careful and your assumptions get in the way, you can miss God intending to. To teach you something about who He is. Someone has said that in the beginning God created man in His own image. And since then man has been trying to recreate God in our image. A.W. Tozer says when you do that what you're left with is a God who can never surprise you, never overwhelm us, nor astonish us, nor transcend us. You can't be that God who there is no other like our God. There have been people throughout our history that have tried to kind of, um, I don't know how to say this other than declaw God. To make him less than he is. To de-God who God is. You may have that guy named Thomas Jefferson. You ever heard that name? American history is kind of a big guy, important guy. He thought Jesus was the most brilliant teacher around. He loved Jesus' teaching. He, he loved to, to talk about him. He called Jesus one of the, the greatest moral instructors in the history of the world. But he did not like miracles. He didn't think they ever happened. And so over about a two to three night period of time, Thomas Jefferson decided he would create his own Bible without any miracles. And he literally took a Bible and took his scissors and he cut out all those miracle parts. The of the 5,000 walking on the water, healing people that are blind, he cut them out. And he was left with this storybook of Jesus' teaching, and he called it uh, the moral teachings of Jesus, something around that. And people today call it the Jefferson Bible. But it's the whole story of a guy who couldn't grasp a God who is so great that miracles can happen. And when you do that, we don't recognize God's presence. Now here's how we do it. We do it by just assuming that God is who we think He is, and He's going to do with us what He's always done. Sometimes we, in our own, we talk about Moses last week and his excuses—excuses excuses that we make. God, I'm too old. I'm too young. I got too many responsibilities. That would cost too much money. I don't have enough time. There are things that I just can't explain. God, I don't understand. God, You've never made sense to me in that way before. So why would it now? God, I tried once and it failed. God, we've never done that as a church before, so how do we know it'll work? And we make assumptions about who God is and what He can do. Here's the thing. If you believe that our God is all-powerful and all-knowing, that He is all-wise and sufficient for all things, then whatever He calls you to do, you must do in obedience to Him. Otherwise, you're kind of questioning whether you believe that. Here's the second thing. Assumptions not only prevent us from recognizing God's presence. Assumptions also keep us in our box. They keep us pinned in. When we get to verse 28, we have this beautiful thing where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me, I'll come out. And Jesus says, come. And Peter got down out of the boat. I love that phrase. He didn't just jump over the side. He didn't just... Uh, kind of step out, he had to crawl down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Most of you know a lot of the rest of the story. We're not going to go there. The point here is that Jesus got out of the boat and walked on water. But what we also understand is, if Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, that there were 11 guys who did not, or at least it doesn't tell us that they did. Now, John Ortberg's a uh, pastor out in California and a writer, and he has called those 11 guys a bunch of boat potatoes. You know what couch potatoes are, right? Recliner potatoes, you know what those are. Some of you are going to be that this afternoon, all right? You're going to sit down for the eight-and-a-half-hour pregame show. You're going to watch the three-and-a-half-hour game. You're going to tape it so you don't have to miss anything. You're going to get some snacks. You're going to get some chips and some dip, and you're going to put it beside you, and you're going to get a drink, and you're you're going to settle where you are. Right, we've talked about this before. That's why they call recliners, what do they call them? What's the biggest brand of recliner in the world? Lazy Boys, right? Not Workout Partners or Active Lifestyle. It's Lazy Boys. We know what couch potatoes are. They're people that settle and they just sit. Well, you got a bunch of boat potatoes here. Now Peter is the disciple that we know as always stepping out, saying the wrong thing, making a, a big declaration, and a lot of times it causes him trouble but sometimes it gets it right. And here's the thing. When opportunities come our way, when we're seeking the Lord, opportunities will come to break down our assumptions, to trust the Lord with our lives, to move forward in faith with Him. And when those opportunities come, we can choose to move forward or we can choose to stay exactly where we are. And when you stay where you are, sometimes you're comfortable, but you're not growing. There are a lot of believers in churches all across America who are the exact same place today they were a year ago when they walk with the Lord. A lot of believers. A lot of believers are the exact same place they were five years ago, ten years ago. One of the primary reasons is because when those opportunities come, they decide to stay in the box. Somebody said, there are defining moments in our lives when our assumptions are challenged about what God can do and wants us to do, and we have a choice to make. We can hang on to our assumptions, or we can hang on to God. Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come walk on the water. And Jesus says what? Come. And at that moment, Peter can hold on to the assumptions that, okay, men don't walk on water. Okay, but he's Jesus. What Peter's asking to do is for him to walk on water. And he could have held on to that assumption or he could step out in faith. Here's the third thing. Assumptions can prevent us from walking on water. Now, I'm not talking about literally here, okay? What I'm talking about is experiencing life like nobody else. How many people in the history of the world without aid of some device, have ever walked on the water. Two. Right? Jesus and Peter. That's it. And what other disciples saw as a scary moment with a possible ghost walking by, Peter saw as an opportunity to live life like nobody else had ever experienced. Now, like I said, I know that he starts to fall, and we could talk about that some other time. We're not going to talk about that today, because what I want to focus on is just these phrases. Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water. What do you think? Before he started noticing the wind, before he started noticing the waves, what do you think it was like to walk on water? Amazing, right? Exhilarating. Listen, how many of you are like roller coasters? All right. I remember, you can still remember, the first time I ever rode a major roller coaster, and I'm not talking about one of those at the county fair that's about this high, all right? And they've got the bumps, all right, with the dragon train or whatever. I'm talking about a major roller coaster. I was, I was, um, when I was younger, when it came to roller coasters and theme parks, I was a little bit of what you would call a scaredy cat, all right? I didn't like them that much, and I found myself on a youth trip to Texas, and we spent a day at Six Flags Over Texas as a youth group. And there is nothing that will make you get over your fear of something more than the fear of not being accepted because everybody else is doing it. Everybody got in line and said, we're going to ride this roller coaster loud. Come on. And at that moment is not the time to go, you know, I'm just not, I don't like roller coasters. They scare me a little bit. I don't know. Right? I mean, guys, you've been, you mean, you go. And so I got in line and that wasn't any, any normal coaster. It was the largest wooden roller coaster in America. They call it Texas giant. And let me just tell you this about Texas. Texas is pretty proud of itself. Anybody, anybody ever been around Texans? All right. Yeah. Clay, we know you. Yeah. Texans like themselves and they like their states and everything's Bigger in Texas. And so in Texas, for you to call something giant, it is giant. So I get in line, and we go over there. And One of the things they nicely do where you get in line, you don't see how tall that first little climb is. And so I went in, I got in, we got strapped in, we got into the, the roller coaster, we start to go, and you start going straight up. And it's not one of these nice, new steel roller coasters. It's one of those go, you know, every... Every little step, you just feel like you're, you feel like there's some guy on the side just pulling you up, all right? And we're going up to the top of this hill. And we get up to the top, and at the top... Anybody here ever ridden Texas Giant, by the way? All right. You can tell me if this is true, if I don't fall here. You get to the top, and when I got to the top, at least, there was a sign above it that has Wiley Coyote. You might have Wiley Coyote from the Roadrunner cartoons. And his head is stretched... And there's a cloud around him, and it says around it, let's reconsider this. And at that moment, that's not a bad idea. The problem is, you can't do it, all right? And so we get to the top, and we start to come over the top, and I don't know if this is how my imagination remembers it, or if it was some kind of haze, but it looked like there were clouds below us, all right? I couldn't see the bottom. As we got to the top, and we went over the edge the next 30 seconds to a minute of my life was some of the greatest moments in the history of Lyle. I know I went third person. It's okay, all right? It was unbelievable. And from that moment on, I loved those rides. Now, I still get a little, you know, twinge in the stomach when you're going up the hill, but I love it. Why? Because nothing in life prepared me for what that minute was going to feel like. Nothing. And you can't describe it. Here's the thing. I believe that God intends for you to live life like no other. And the only thing that I could even compare the exhilaration of riding a roller coaster to are those moments in my life when I have let my assumptions fall and I have followed God with my whole heart into something that I never would have imagined. Peter gets out of the boat, and he finds that it's worth the risk. He finds that it's necessary for growth. And he finds out that when we step out, that it begins to expand our comfort zone. And we get more comfortable, and then we have to move further out. And before long, saying yes to one trip leads to a life of interjecting yourself through God's love into the lives of people. But it all begins with a step a decision. For some of you in this room, it may be that you've got the assumption that that co-worker next to you doesn't care anything about God, wouldn't want to hear anything about what you'd have to say about it. And it takes starting a conversation. For some of you in this room, it's that, yeah, I know that, that, that going to New York would be great, I know going to Brazil would be great, but that's for other people. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm supposed to do that. It means taking a step of faith. For some of you, we're going to be talking in the next few weeks about uh, an initiative from the Tennessee Babs Convention to go door-to-door to every house in Goodlettsville before Easter. Some of you say, well, that, that's just not me. brother." Lyle, there, there are people that are gifted in that way, but I am not one of them. That's my assumption. I'm just saying, no, no, God's called me to be a part of that. I can guarantee you this if you are going to walk with the Lord faithfully, He's going to continually tear down your assumptions in life. And the question is, are you going to hold on to the assumption or are you going to hold on to God? So what's God calling you to do? What is your step out of the boat, walk on water kind of moment in your life right now? And are you going to be Peter? Are you going to be the boat potato? Still stuck where you are.